You're all over Trump. I found like you're, you're Trump central. Well, I, I, I have never got over that 2016 election. I am in PTSD every day. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am honored by the presence of today's <laughs> guest. This is someone that I've wanted to speak to on the podcast for two years. I have an email trail of inquiries asking her to come on the podcast dating back to July 2018. She is a former BC Crown prosecutor and a critically acclaimed media commentator. She was a finalist for the Jack Webster Award for Best Column last year, by the way. You've seen her on TV. You've heard her on the radio, particularly on CKNW sharing her depth of knowledge and insights on a wide variety of political matters. She's the national affairs columnist for National Observer and the current co-host of Canada Land's Oppo podcast, opposite Jen Gerson. She is Sandy Garasino. Sandy, how are you? Hey, Mo, I'm looking around the room like, who else is here? (laughs) Who is this person you're talking about? (laughs) It's you. I'm so excited. (laughs) Nice to see you. Great to be here. I have to be honest. I'm yearning. (laughs) I am yearning to go back to a time where you and I were vociferously going back and forth on Twitter about Uber and ride sharing in BC as we did on New Year's Eve without Mm -hmm. the slightest idea of how 2020 was going to kick us in the face. (laughs) In right in the chops. No kidding. What a simpler time. What? Gosh, when will we be there again? Never, probably. <laughs> no, it's, it's never, changed. It's over. Yeah. The past is a foreign country. Yeah. I feel like I've turned a corner personally. Like I was in a bit of an existential crisis, particularly in March and April. Mm-hmm. I still do worry about, you know, a second wave of COVID mm-hmm. getting us back to that sort of lockdown stage. I do worry about Trump winning re-election. And I do worry about what the rest of the year might have in store, because every, every month it seems like there's something new. But I feel like I've turned a corner. How are you feeling about this year now, now that we're in, in summer? Well, I feel like I have a lot of guilt because I feel like I and a lot of people in my generation and station in life sailed through this mm. whole experience. And I realize in every day as I watch everything unfold. First of all, my motherhood years are behind me, so I'm not dealing with fussy kids trying to teach anybody. I'm not dealing with, you know, the the gritty issues. We watched Black Lives Matter. We watched all of these issues. We watched the Indigenous file explode here in British Columbia mm-hmm. earlier this year. I mean, that feels like half a century ago. Trump was impeached this year. And Trump I keep was forgetting impe- that. But you see, this is where we always have this fantasy. Like we, those of us who are old enough, which includes me, but not you, remember <laughs> when, remember the whole threat of impeachment against Richard Nixon. And this was like the death sentence, the absolute death sentence of a president. Mm-hmm. And now it's just like, you know, first term blues. Yeah, it's nothing. So, But also in the greater context of 2020, like, mm-hmm. there's so much has happened. Yes. 
Yes. Right? I think in a normal year, that would be the biggest story of the year. And I'm wondering if it sneaks into the top five. And just imagine, I mean, this is the way that consciousness kind of fools us all the time, because we don't think about what's not right in front of us. But imagine if he had... In, by some miracle been removed so that at the start of this pandemic or as this pandemic really started to begin to gain strength mm-hmm. in the United States um, and take hold, imagine if there had been a responsible president who was <laughs> not actually cheering on the virus. Yeah trying to kill as many i mean if if that man were trying to kill as many americans as possible he couldn't do a better job (laughs) don't you think i think he sucks at his job if Mm -hmm. that's what you're saying yeah Uh, i i don't think he cares about how many people die but look at the politicization of the masks the politics like anybody anybody who's trying to stop the virus is a sissy um, and, you know, those armed guys and the Boogaloo boys who are grabbing their guns and trying to bust into the Michigan State House, good on them. Good on them. You go. Like, seriously, bizarre. Yeah, I think it's very short sighted thinking. I think he just cares about the stock market. He has money yeah. in the stock market. That's all he cares about. Even when he points at his own accomplishments, he's just pointing at the stock market. I don't even know how much he's got in the stock market uh, um, or how much he's got at all. But the stock market, that's where his donors reside, Mm. right? That's what he cares about is that he thinks if he's pleasing those voters, then the rest will come with him. And And what he's missing, what terrifies me is that we're at the beginning stage of the economic pandemic. Yeah. We're in December of the economic pandemic. Mm. And the longer that that country south of the border of us fails to address and the, the more catastrophic that, thing, that narrative unfolds, this is going to cause economic damage beyond anyone's imagining. We can't even picture how bad this is going to get. And yeah. we will go down with that ship. We are tied to it irrevocably. Yeah. But you're good, right? You're doing I'm all good. right. <laughs> Me? I got a nice garden. I'm good. I'm happy. Life has been good. I got a new grandbaby and Love life it. is good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I want to get into some more local issues. We will get into Trump in a little bit. I want to get your take on the whole Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing. And I just want to refresh the listeners. The subject was covered in a call that I had with Ian Young a few weeks ago. But I just want to catch everyone up to speed. So at the end of 2018, Canada arrested Ms. Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of the Chinese telecoms giant Huawei. It was part of an extradition request from the United States, which charged Huawei with fraud, as allegedly Huawei had defrauded HSBC and some other banks in breach of U.S. sanctions on Iran. And this was part of an investigation dating back to the Obama administration. Presumably in retaliation, China then kidnapped two of our citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and recently has now applied these trumped-up charges of espionage or spying or something. And unfortunately, those two, they are uh, facing trials. And the Chinese government, however, has kind of indicated like there could be a swap for, for Meng. They've sort of inferred this. But Ms. Meng is 
facing her extradition here in BC Supreme Court. And that's not a trial. It's basically Ms. Mung's legal challenge against the extradition. And so she has several platforms that she's challenging the extradition on. The first is that her lawyers are claiming that it's a political frame-up. The second is that her lawyers are saying that she was unlawfully treated upon arrest. The third is that she's saying that the U.S. actually misrepresented the evidence. And the fourth is that they said that the charges didn't meet the double criminality standards, which means that the fraud charges weren't actually a crime in Canada. But in May, the B.C. Supreme Court determined that actually fraud did meet the double criminality standard. So that last one is out of the way. There's still three platforms, though, that I mentioned, which are challenging this extradition. You've made a case for Canada's Minister of Justice that they can and should intervene to let Meng go. Can you sort of unpack first the power of political intervention that Canada has in terms of its getting involved in the judicial system here and why you think that's the best course of action for Canada? Well, I think there the thing is that this case has so many layers of complexity and primarily we have seen the case through the lens the government, the government of Canada really wants us to see it through, which is this is a Canada-China issue. Mm -hmm. um, as Princess Diana famously said, there are three people in this marriage, not just <laughs> two. There is another party, and that is the United States. Yeah. And that's where, I mean, I started to write on this in December of 2018, where mm -hmm. I was widely ignored um, because Donald Trump on December 12th of 2018, shortly after Meng's arrest, um, told Reuters that he was prepared to negotiate her um, her custody status and her freedom in exchange for trade negotiations. Mm -hmm. And as we have seen, um, the president of the United States with Ukraine and with John Bolton's um, book it, and his revelations that Trump has frequently uh, attempted to negotiate and trade for his own personal advantage um, with, with autocrats and dictators, this is not out of character. Mm -hmm. But as soon as Trump did that, I mean, I said this in December 2018, that if I were the crown, if I were involved in that case, this alarm bell should have been going off because in that moment, he delegitimized our extradition proceedings. He turned Canada and Canada's justice system into his hostage taker. Right. And, and that is one of the challenges in the... That's, extradition that's, hearing, that's, right? That is one of the arguments. Further, there's a there's a lot more to this. I mean, one of the things that Canadians need to understand really is the is the background. So there are two um, there are two thrusts of American action against Huawei. One is uh, for one is another indictment that Meng Wanzhou is not included in, um, which is a Department of Justice indictment against Huawei for cyber espionage. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a huge background to that. And by the way, I believe that China is a very malicious actor in this, and Huawei is a malicious actor. I ha I'm not carrying any water for any anybody here. <laughs> I wasn't going to make that accusation, Sandy. Come on. But, well, but, uh, you know, it's easy to think, oh, you're being naive or et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a lot to unpack. So that mm -hmm. one is the cyber espionage indictment, which is unrelated formally to this indictment, but I think that it it provides the deep background um, 
to this case. The other is the Iran sanctions um, mm-hmm. indictment, and that is really John Bolton's baby um, because he's always, you know, been a hard ass on anything to do with Iran. Right. Um, it's really minor, more minor than the cyber espionage. And Meng Wanzhou herself is um, a a small fish in a big sea. She was, although I think that probably the uh, allegations of the U.S. Department of Justice that she committed fraud are probably true. Um, probably so did 25 to 30 to 50 other people associated with Huawei. Mm-hmm. The U.S. government made the conscious choice to make her a trophy. I mean, she was the equivalent of asking for the extradition of Ivanka Trump. As soon as that extradition request crossed the desk of then um, Attorney General and Minister of Justice Jody Wilson-Raybould, to me, immediately alarm bells should have been going off. They should have been going off in CSIS. Why? Because the last time that the U.S., sought the extradition of a politically sensitive Chinese national from Canada. And the last time we arrested such a person, who was a man by the name of Stephen Su in Richmond, B.C., China took two hostages then, too. The two missionaries, the Garrett the two, couple. The Garrett right? couple. Um, I believe it's Julia and Kevin Garrett. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Garrett, Julia Garrett was imprisoned for six months um, and detained for much longer in China. And Kevin Garrett was detained for another two and a half years, or for about two and a half wow. years, um, um, in really appalling conditions. We already knew, and the U.S. knew, what that, that this extradition request posed a real and present threat of harm, serious harm, to Canadians in China. Hmm. So, And Stephen Su, is, it, is, is that the name, the Chinese yeah. name? His, he also, he, in the indictment, as Su Bin. So Su Bin obviously was not as big of a trophy as Meng Wanzhou. Su Bin was a massively larger trophy. <laughs> How do I put this? Um, Meng Wanzhou is a, this was, this is really criminal justice's performative theater Mm -hmm. is the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. She, she, Su Bin was a much more important player. Su Bin directed um, Chinese People's Liberation's army hackers in a multi-year hacking um, uh, and cyber espionage um, exercise by which they broke into uh, and um, stole massive, massive reams of data relating to U.S. military defense contractor secrets mm-hmm. and um, air and uh, fighter jet plans, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, others. Wow. Um, over $40 billion worth of development cost was um, basically stolen by China, by mm-hmm. the People's Liberation Army, under the direction of this guy by the name of Stephen Su, who was just across the bridge in Richmond, B.C. <laughs> and he did this for many, many years. Yeah. Um, so the U.S. sought to extradite, sought Canada's help in extraditing him. This is part of a... Um, an evolving strategy that the U.S. was taking to deal with cyber espionage. And that's kind of partially the back, 
drop here. Mm-hmm. But there were very different strategies taken by the Obama administration versus the Trump administration. Okay. And this is what I'm saying is that to get to the point, the Trump administration railroaded Canada into this very much against our interests. And we should have had more background backbone in dealing with them. Um, it was improper of them to ask this of it of us after we'd already after they knew that this was going to put Canadians in danger and where have they been for all this time <laughs> you know if these were Americans do you think that they'd be as quiet as they've been right so um um, when we look at those two parallel cases between Subin and, and Meng Wanzhou what is it that the Americans did differently with Ms. Meng versus uh, Mr. Sue. So I'm putting my former prosecutor's hat on when I look at these circumstances, and mm-hmm. it's been a very long time, but, th- but you know, I've done enough plea negotiations to be able to read between the lines. I have no inside information. I have no, um, no official or unofficial information. But when I look at the outcome of the Sue Bin case, the Stephen Sue case, it's really obvious to me that he negotiated a plea bargain and that probably the Chinese were all part of this. So what happened was that rather than going through the whole rigmarole of um, contesting his extradition, mm-hmm. um, he consented to be extradited to the United States. And within a month, he pled guilty and he got fined. This is a guy who was really the mastermind and architect of cyber espionage stealing tens of billions of dollars hmm. of military secrets, defense plans. Um, and you can see the Chinese replicas of of uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing military um, uh, flight hardware on the tarmac in China and at various air shows, all his handiwork. Hmm. Um, he got a $10,000 fine and 18 months in prison. <laughs> so so why isn't Meng doing that? I think that it's too politically sensitive. I think it. she is too, again, she's the Ivanka Trump. China can't, she's not going to plead guilty. And the other thing, I mean, there's so much to this case. Mm-hmm. Again, she was an add-on. Typically, when the United States government goes after a corporate entity for these kinds of charges, as they did with ZTE, another Chinese, uh, not necessarily state-owned, but certainly um, state-sponsored corporate entity uh, that was doing exactly the same thing, violating Iran sanctions, and and the U.S. Department of Justice and State Department, Department of Commerce took action against ZTE, um, when they did that, they just charged them they just tar- charged the corporation. There was nobody, mm-hmm. there were no individuals charged. And Huawei has entirely parallel charges on this indictment as the ZTE charges. Everything is exactly the same. It's just that the United States decided to, that they wanted to sweeten their own pot. They wanted to take a bigger prisoner. They wanted to make a bigger statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a choice. But as far as I'm concerned, do that on your own dime, man. If you want to do that, put your own people at risk. You find a way to get Meng Wanzhou onto U.S. territory. You do not involve third-party nations Mm -hmm. in your own political machinations that are part of your um, enterprise against Huawei and against Chinese cyber espionage. One question that I have, though, is that 
it's not like the extradition treaty, as far as I know, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like the extradition was directed by the Trump administration. It came out of a court in New York, right? No, but but that's just the that's the Department of Justice. That always comes out of an, an originating jurisdiction. Okay, fair enough. Sue yeah. Bin was prosecuted out of Los Angeles. Okay, so that's just that's just the 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 um, the designated jurisdiction of origin of the indictment. Gotcha. Okay, so the this is a U.S. government yeah. Department of Justice initiative. Okay, fair enough. It's a Bill Barr case now. <laughs> Were you suggesting that Mr. Sue was basically preordained a deal, which is why no. he was extradited? Because I'm not, I'm still, no. I'm, I need clarity on what the difference is between the Sue case and the Mung case in terms of how the U.S. Tr- or U.S. treated okay. us. Okay. Because it sounds like there's, they're very similar, except that Mung is not going to the U.S. Nobody's, yeah, the orchestra's not playing the right song for, for, for the Mung case. So <laughs> the difference is that, so just to rewind this whole case a little and go back, for the early part of the 20th century or 21st century, for the, the, the aughts, um, the U.S. government was watching a lot of the cyber espionage that was going on. They were observing various um, independent and also state actors mm-hmm. um, that were getting involved in cyber in, in cyber espionage, some of it um, um, uh, commercial. Um, you know, it was the standard suspects, the usual suspects, uh, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... And, so the FBI, if you consider the law enforcement side of things, um, the FBI has domestic law enforcement, but it also has an intelligence side. Okay. Um, and that's what Bob Mueller long ago be, was involved in. He was directing the intelligence side of the FBI. Okay. That side of the FBI made the decision around 2012 during the Obama administration they made the decision that they were going to up the ante that they were tired of passively watching this they wanted to start to exact um, they wanted to uh, exact punishment they mm-hmm. wanted and they wanted to make this tougher they started to want to embarrass these various state actors embarrass China in particular um, and then they wanted to, they just started to up the ante. The author of all of this, the architect of, of this strategy is a guy by the name of John Carlin, who was the um, former deputy assistant um, attorney general um, in charge of this this area. And it, they formulated a plan that they were going to start to charge individuals. And they started out um, by charging Chinese um, PLA, People's Liberation Army, hackers in a case called the Ugly Gorilla case. But those people were all in China. Hmm. They decided they wanted, it was their estimation that China was a rational actor and that it would behave rationally, (laughs) that as um, the U.S. started to tighten the noose, tighten and ratchet punishment, as, as Iran started to do that, or sorry, as America started to do that, that China would respond and 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 tone down its cyber espionage activity, especially its state-sponsored activity. Sure. So then they decided that they were going to go after 
Sue Bin um, because they could get him. And this was supposed to be, this was going to be their big case. This mm-hmm. was, and they arrested him. This was, a, this was their, this was their big moment. This was like, um, you know, they're supposed to blow things out of the water. And China immediately just flipped the table on them, did not do what was expected, i.e. toned down its activity. <laughs> they took two Canadians hostage. Yeah. They abducted them. That was not in the playbook. Gotcha. Okay. This was not planned on. They didn't, and the U.S., what is clear is that the U.S. didn't anticipate that, that, that China would do something so outside the realm of um, accepted international norms. Right. But because of this precedent of events, they should have known that this was going to happen the time, with, with Ms. Meng. So over the, so over the course of the Sue Bin prosecution, extradition and prosecution, it became clear that, well, this was maybe a dumber idea than we thought. Right. And maybe this was this was a failed strategy. Mm-hmm. And there are commentators today that talk about this as a as as a failed strategy. But that didn't stop them when, when Trump came to power from deciding to do it again. Mm-hmm. And with the same players, with Canada and China, and with the exact same result. Only now the stakes are so much higher that everybody has to pretend that we have no choice here. <laughs> So when that order came through to Jody Wilson-Raybould's desk when she was attorney general, you're saying that she did have a choice. Uh, I mean, she should have slow walked it at that moment. Um, first of all, what the Americans said was in their in their extradition affidavit that went before the extra the extradition judge for the warrant. They said that they had no choice, that this was a very urgent arrest that had to happen at this time um, or else she was going to, Meng Wanzhou would be back in China and beyond the reach of authorities. Mm -hmm. That was complete bollocks. There was nothing to that. She had already been in five other countries, including the UK, France, Japan, Belgium. She's an international CFO who's traveling Mm -hmm. around the world. It was misleading at best to claim that the only opportunity that America had was to seize her at the airport in Vancouver. She had two houses here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. She'd been here in October. All of this spoke to an attempt to kind of rush this bias in some way. Mm-hmm. And then the the attorney general had the opportunity to to raise this and it and CSIS should have been involved the um Christia Freeland the, for, the then foreign minister should have been involved. This should have been the subject at least even if they did um execute the warrant the discussions should have been happening very high diplomatic levels as how are we going to manage this case. Yeah. Um and it doesn't what we have to remember is that in this exact same timeline the SNC matter was a huge bomb going off yeah. inside the Trudeau government and Jody Wilson-Raybould and Justin Trudeau appeared not to be talking to each other hmm. or be talking to each other through intermediaries and i i'm putting two and two together and maybe i'm getting five but i look at this and i'm i'm thinking to myself well 
if the minister is thinking to herself, well, if I ask for the prime minister to intervene in this case, then it's going to make it look like I'm out. I'm not doing the right thing and telling him to stay, keep at arm's length in the SNC prosecution. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm, it's pure speculation. But it appears, I wonder, I raise the question, were personalities and troubles within cabinet part of the reason why we did not immediately like raise alarm bells and stop this hmm. right then and there, especially once Donald Trump um, said, expressed his intention to negotiate trade concessions on her. Do you think that was ultimately the motive of the extradition? No, but I think that he's an opportunist. I think it's almost like, you know, this is a guy, it, it comes, it's, it's, a, it's a reflex. It's like breathing to him to try and extort. I just think that as soon as he realized he had her, so what was the motive of the extradition, knowing full well that they've done this with Mr. Sue and it did not go as to plan? Well, remember that, you know, one of the the um, or the motives of origin of everybody in the Trump administration is to make the Obama administration look bad. So I think that, I mean, you can only try and guess at all of this. I, I mean, I'm probably bringing in way too many threads into this for the for the average <laughs> listener. But you also have to remember that Jeff Sessions had been the Attorney General at the time that this strategy was originally um, decided upon by the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. This was part of an attempt to use all tools of government against China. Um, but then Jeff Sessions got fired in the very same month that we got asked to execute this warrant. And we were dealing with that Whitaker doorknob, who was the acting attorney general. Remember him, the toilet salesman, who was right. the acting, act, <laughs> acting attorney general? Um, and really, there's there was basically nobody... Uh, Pompeo was secretary of state, but, he, but he's just a natural-born, you know bull in a china shop he's got no sense of the um nuances of this i can't imagine going to mike pompeo and saying you know we had hostages taken before mm -hmm. you know could you do us a solid here and and you know pick pick some other victim for your extradition <laughs> or do it yourself i mean you saw i don't know if you saw the adrian arsenault interview with um john bolton, john bolton yeah and you just see that attitude well basically an f you yeah you know do you want to be with the are you with us or against us you just do what we say and i know a lot of this is speculation i'm I'm just trying to figure out why they did this again and why they did it to us again. I don't think they cared. I don't think they thought about it. I think hmm. they had the evidence. I mean, they knew they had the evidence. You know, this is the kind of this speaks to me of somebody somebody who thinks he's smarter than he really is, has this great idea, oh, well, we've got this evidence against Meng Wanzhou, we've intercepted these communications, we know about this, we can make a case here, we could add her, this would be a big coup, this would make headlines, you know, this would be a really big deal without anybody really considering, is this a prudent 
prosecution. Because mm-hmm. this is something that people should understand about prosecutorial discretion, is that prosecutors make decisions all the time that in the public interest, we're not going to pursue this case or these charges in this way against this accused, even though formally we think we can make this mm-hmm. case out. Police, I mean, this is the whole problem with Black Lives Matter is you've got the rules, but then you've got inconsistent enforcement of the rules right. because police exercise their discretion. Discretion is a good thing, but you want it exercised with judgment, professionalism, an understanding of all the complexities and all the various interests. All that has happened out of this, and this is why this is a bomb that's gone off actually in the in America's face, because all that's come out of this is that if America puts out a warrant to arrest any sens- politically sensitive Chinese national in the world, nobody... No country is going to arrest them. Right. Because we all know what will happen. That's why this whole thing about, well, you know, what it, what kind of example is it going to make? We've made the example. We are the example. We are the example of, for the world. Yeah. When we look at what we can do now, hmm. can we intervene with our justice minister saying, okay, extradition hearings off? Mung, you can go back home. Is that actually possible? Like just legally speaking? Yes, it is, and and that's another aspect of of this that I I you know I, it pains me to watch the prime minister's office that really still doesn't seem to have a read on how the the ministry of justice works and how things should work. I mean, and and you know I haven't done that role, but. Like I say, prosecutorial discretion is there at all times. It never, it's never not there. Uh, the Attorney General Lametti has taken the position that, well, I'll wait until the extradition advance, advances to a phase called the ministerial phase. Mm-hmm. In the ministerial phase, the minister can um, look at public interest. He can look at issue questions like abuse of process, uh, charter rights. Um, mm-hmm. Has has the has the accused been arrested or detained improperly um, in in a manner? Has, have they been subjected to arbitrary arrest and detention? That's and of this thing. phase is after the hearing this is concluded. This is after the after the judicial phase. Okay. So we're a year and a half away from that. But the prosecutor, I mean, they're, we're in the downtown east side of Vancouver right now, and just 100 yards away is 222 Main Street, where there are, I don't know how many trials are going on today, probably, you know, I wouldn't even care to guess. Dozens and dozens of trials and proceedings are going on, and I can promise you that prosecutions have been stayed today. Probably at least half a dozen cases have been stayed today because new evidence came became mm. available to the Crown that they didn't have, uh, that uh, circumstances, the Crown has be, been made aware of charter breaches. Uh, it's no longer considered to be in the public interest uh, to pursue the charges. Uh, these things happen Six ways to Sunday. They happen 
every day. <laughs> and somehow, this myth has been put up broad along amongst the land that, well, we have to continue with this case. We have no choice, even notwithstanding, though, we were advised that... Um, false information was given by the U.S. government to, to support the arrest, notwithstanding that we know that the president of the United States is attempting to negotiate and turn us into his hostage keepers, notwithstanding a lot of information that I suspect we're about to learn in August when everything reconvenes. Mm -hmm. And again, this is why I have you here, because you have been studying this case. You obviously have the background to understand these things that the average person can't. I was just under the impression that the intervention of from the Minister of Justice would be extraordinary. We would only see this in a case of like mistaken identity or some sort of human rights concern. And that's kind of how it's being presented, that if the Minister of Justice were to intervene and either stop the hearing from continuing or in the ministerial stage, as you said, to go against her being extradited, mm -hmm. that would be something that's completely unheard of and in a very rare circumstance. But you're saying it it's not as it it's not that extraordinary. Well, extraditions extraditions of at this level are very extraordinary by their nature. Okay. This is an extraordinary ex ex um extradition. There's nothing ordinary about this from beginning to end. Um, but for example, we've got the case of Hassan Diab, um, who was that sociology professor, I think he's at Carleton, and he was arrested under a French extradition warrant. Um, in, and as part of that extradition, the federal crown became aware um, that the fingerprints that the French government was relying on, he was he was charged as a as um, a suspected terrorist relating to a plot decades and decades ago. It turns out that it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. We went through the embarrassment of having extradited him. He went off to he went off to France. He was subjected to trial. He was subjected to um, solitary confinement in France. He was put through the nightmare of that trial. This is a Canadian resident. He went through years and years of nightmare. Then it turns out, after the fact, that we knew early on that the French fingerprints that they were relying on didn't were not did not um, did not match hmm. Hassan Diab, and that there were other um, there was other information that the prosecution had in its possession that um, that the defense never saw. Um, there were issues, there were serious problems, which all turned out to be the case when it ended up going to trial in France. Yeah. These are instances, these are rare instances, but when you become aware of them, I mean, this is the, what, the prosecutor is not just a trial lawyer, the prosecutor is an officer of the court. It is always, always, and inescapably a prosecutorial duty to see justice done. Mm -hmm. That is your number one duty. Your number one duty is not to try and get a conviction, right. not to try and and get the extradition, not to, to make sure that, or to, to do your best for the Americans or do your best for the French. Your first duty is that the court is not misled and that justice is done. And in, in my opinion, as soon as you've got 
a head of state that is trying to trade off your someone you're holding in custody. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain that we're going to be seeing more from the defense team on this. I'm absolutely mm. certain of it because all of the signs point to it. Putting aside Trump's comment, would the extradition request have happened no matter who was president? Because you, you were saying that, you know, sometimes we couldn't determine what the motive was clearly, but you're saying mm-hmm. that sometimes prosecutors want to get that big fish or mm-hmm. they want to proceed with criminal proceedings. If Trump wasn't president, if we had a sane president, just mm-hmm. an average president, what difference would it have made? Okay, well, let's assume that Obama was president or Hillary Clinton was president or Joe Biden was president. What I would expect, and I, this is one of the things that I think is part of this, is that we're talking about n- not politically interfering in a case. I think we are, by fiat, politically interfering because we're afraid to confront the Americans about what they've done here. And it's our, it's, we're being cowards and we're being timid because we do not want to make an international um, issue and draw Trump's ire. That's, so it's not like we have a choice of not being political here. But in, in a rational, um, in a rational government, I think that what would, what would have happened would be high-level communications, presumably between Christian Freeland and whoever was the U.S. Secretary of State, um, about the advisability of this prosecution and what, and that this was placing Canadians in harm, harm's way and that our first obligation is the protection of Canadian lives and health mm-hmm. and that Canadians were endangered by this and how necessary is this prosecution? If you've got, you know, an international assassin who's killed, you know, who's assassinated a president or assassinated a head of state or something like that, and you've got a major, then, you know, you pull out all the stops. But if this is a... Uh, if if the prosecution is against somebody who is really just an add-on, I would be going to the to the Secretary of State and saying, "Please just proceed against Huawei, who is your primary target here. This individual, this is not in Canada's interests mm-hmm. to do this, and we we would be asking you um, as our as our partner, as our extradition partner, to please not do. We wouldn't do this to America. Do you yeah. think? Do you think?" For five minutes, that if we put out an extradition, I don't warrant, have to think for that long. No, <laughs> that was and somebody was going to take Americans hostages for years. For years, do you think America would do that for us? No, probably not. I, I guess again, just to bring it back, I just want to be clear. What you're saying is the extradition request would have gone out, but if there was a better administration. And perhaps a more cohesive cabinet from our side, mm-hmm. we would have been able to communicate our way out of this. Is yeah. that basically what you're saying? Yeah, I think that there was. Because it's not like Trump sent out the order to go no, get Trump. No, right? Trump did not. But he has he has these kinds of guys. You know, he's got his henchmen type of guys who are yeah. who are pursuing this. I just I just feel that knowing what would have what happened the last time, and knowing that the essential that the essential elements and dynamics were unchanged between Canada, the United States and China, that it was totally foreseeable that China would do exactly what China did. Um, and that 
America would have known that. And in a way, they were embarrassed by the Subin case, mm-hmm. I think. Um, uh, you, you know, but you say that, but then their, their prosecution is doing that again, like their Department of Justice is trying but to run a, the same game plan. They're trying to run the same, but I don't know what they expected. This yeah. is what's not rational about it. This yeah. is the kind and that's of, what I'm trying to understand. This is the kind of bully boy <laughs> approach. It's, I don't even think that they thought about it. I just thought yeah. think that they thought this would be really great because remember, they've stripped out all the personnel. Everybody's been stripped out of the Department mm. of Justice. You know, they've been purged from that government. Right. So you don't have the institutional memory. Sure. And you don't have the relationships. Yeah. And and so I want to be very clear. You are suggesting that based on all of these circumstances, there should be political intervention from the federal government, from the Minister of Justice to say, let Mung go, like right well, now. Well, I don't think it's political. I think that, I think that... Well, however you want to yeah, describe it. I think yeah. that there should be ministerial intervention Okay. to suspend this extradition. If we do that, because the backlash is going to be, well, aren't we just incentivizing China's bad behavior. And anytime there's a diplomatic row, they're just going to do the same thing because apparently this works. But it worked last time. (laughs) Yeah, but so it's reinforcing, double enforcing the idea that kidnapping our guys is puts pressure on us. Well, so so we say no. And now next month, um, Trump's asks the Trump's administration asks us to extradite somebody else. Okay, you're the minister of justice. Here, here's a, here's a new extradition request for another highly sensitive politi- individual from China. Okay, go. Are you going to sign that? I, ex- <laughs> are you going to do it? Are you going to process that? I have no idea. That's why I'm asking you. I don't know. Um, I mean, it seems like we're just caught between a rock and a hard place for the most part. Well, we're caught in a way that it's funnily enough, all the other countries in the world have found a way to have the dog eat their extradition homework. You know, mm. um, are there cases of that that we know of where an extradition request was sent and just was not really carried through or clearly well, purposely I, was not carried through? I can't I can't speak to cases that I know about. I have heard heard that, you know, um, type complaints about typos have been made by mm. other countries, um, but I don't I don't. I don't have personal knowledge of cases. You know, this is not the kind of thing you get personal <laughs> knowledge of. I just think that it's extraordinary that of all the gin joints in all the world, you know, we're the suckers again. Yeah. And this is a person who has been traveling all over the world, the UK, France, Belgium, Japan, all over the place to countries that have extradition warrants. And funnily enough, the Americans didn't seem to think that they could extradite from those countries. I don't know why. Do you think they picked us for a specific reason? It's hard to say how much they thought about it, but it looks that way to me. And the other thing that makes it And what would that reason be? The other thing that it makes it... Well, because they thought that we would do it. Yeah. And maybe they, maybe they worried that other countries wouldn't. Mm-hmm. When we look at the cases of the two Michaels, and I'm just throwing this out there as a question, because mm. you hear this on the radio, you hear this yeah. in the public consciousness. Why can't we just play hardball with China? Why can't we? 
<laughs> I'm asking you a serious question because you hear it. You hear people say this, right? So why I, can't... Any, do you hear anybody who's been to China say this? <laughs> that I can't comment this on. Is, I don't know this everyone's... Is, if it isn't today, it will be very soon. The largest economy in the world. Look what they're doing to Hong Kong. Look what they're doing through the Uyghurs. We're going to take them on. Us and whose army? Because nobody I, I, is stepping about, up. I'm not talking about going to war. <laughs> well, but that's what it... What Well, what else? What hardball can we play? I, I kick out their international students, kick out their ambassador and council and then generals. What? And then what? These, these are people who are prepared to take our citizens hostage. Bring back you our get guys. In, you want to get into this? Well, oh, we're going to bring back all the Canadians. We're going to tell all the Canadians, like the Garretts, who were there for decades, for almost 30 years, building a life there that you have to up, pull up stakes and come home to Canada. Where I'm, you not, have no- I'm not advocating for this position. I'm just saying you hear it on you hear people saying it you hear people saying we need to be tough even right now with the conservative leadership election you hear the same thing we need to be tough on china so okay that's my question to you how about the conservatives agree that we should not sell oil to china (laughs) so we can stop this pipeline right now end it all nobody's volunteering that are they but currently only four percent of our exports go to china it's not that big of a deal. What what's our dignity worth? Four percent is four percent is 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 pretty fair when you consider that the US is what, seventy five percent? Yeah. So that's they're 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 one of our biggest um non US trading partners. But like a distant <laughs> Yeah. I mean I don't <laughs> a distant second. Well it, but that just shows that in fact we have very little leverage. You know, we're because, our, because, we're because we don't mean anything to China. We are so tiny in the scheme of things. We are nothing to China. But they consume resources that they like to buy from us. They can get them somewhere else. This, so, is, the so, same, this is the same problem that Hong Kong is having right now, that, that, that Hong Kong has no leverage against China. And Hong Kong is a much more significant. But Hong Kong is not a sovereign state. No, but it's but just the same. I mean, it, there was still the whole two two governments. I'm I'm not getting the the um, nomenclature right, um, but they they were technically supposed to be free for another couple of decades, mm-hmm. um, and China's just basically saying, "Well, to hell with that noise. We're we're done with that." Okay, so and, and I understand you were very resistant to this idea. It's again, it's not one that I'm advocating for. I'm asking you what the consequence would be if Canada decided to play, quote unquote, hardball with China. If we decided to say, we're going to kick out your students, we're going to kick out your diplomats, we're going to bring as many people as we can back home. If you don't want our exports, that's fine. Well, that's what Australia is going through now. I mean, I think that... I think that But to- they don't seem to be that bad off as a result? I mean, certainly they're having this this tension with them, but it's not like the they're end of having, the world. They're having tension over other things, but I, I don't think that there's much doubt that China would just increase the pressure, and I don't think... By, by what? By doing what? Canadians live there, Mo. So you think they would just put Canadians in mass in prison? I don't know how I'm many. Asking. I don't know. One, two, three. How many Canadians... Do you think we should be prepared to sacrifice? I don't know. I'm I'm just asking what the consequence see, this would is be. The th- this is the problem <laughs> with that. You know, we're going to play hardball. This is still you. Know, and that's when, why I'm when, asking you the question to break it down. We still have this. Pardon me, but we still have this 
colonial mindset about you know that we can swagger around the globe and that we've got a big punch we are nothing we do not have leverage here the only thing we can possibly do is either the u.s goes to bat for us and this is what really bothers me is where the hell have they been through all of this because if this was american lives this would have been a big fucking deal Mm -hmm. and they've done nothing we're doing this for them they have done nothing and then we have the 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 gall of john bolton to come in and have an interview with adrian arsenal and try and bully her around and yell at her as if as as if they're doing us a favor by having our people taken prisoner on their behalf. Um, so either the U.S. comes in and helps us, or you know, one of the things that I do here is discussion about um, uh, um, joining with other nations that that do have relationships you know australia and some european countries and and there are we we could collectively i think sweden is having difficulty i think sweden has got people in custody right now by the chinese um or has had this is not China isn't only doing this to Canada and only doing this over yeah, this issue. Yeah, they have issue. a lot of conflicts with a lot of different countries. They have countries. a lot of conflicts. And I think that it's fair to say, and I do have some sympathy on this score, clearly China is emerging as a very malevolent world power. I think Xi Jinping is a very dangerous figure we look at what's happening with the Uyghurs. We look at what's happening with Hong Kong. Um, I do understand the argument about placating China mm-hmm. here. Um, but it's not like we have any leverage that's going to move anything. This is an international global community um, issue. This is part of the problem with Donald Trump weakening the United States so badly and shredding the relationships, the NATO relationships, the European relationships, the international community, the G7, all of these relationships are hanging by a thread. Um, and and we're a casualty of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do not, unless the international community is prepared to step up and come and stand shoulder to shoulder with Canada, and where are they? It sounds like you're saying a lot of that hinges on the United States to help bring together that coalition. Or even though China, like you rightly said, I think has conflicts with so many different countries, why isn't there a banding together when it's clearly, you know, China versus the world in a lot of ways? I mean, they have mm-hmm. issues with. With all the European countries, with all the English-speaking countries, with the United States themselves, with India. There are so many issues. Why can't the rest of the world just come together and say, you know what, we're we're done? Well, um, I'm not the president of that association. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems, I don't know, again... I'm asking just basic questions because these are questions that people yeah. ask. Yeah. And this yeah. is what you hear in the discourse. Well, a lot of it is wishful thinking. A lot of the why can't we just is really I wish we could. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Do you believe that part of the problem is there's a certain element in our political or commercial establishment in this country that has 
such interest in China, particularly financial interest, Mm -hmm. that they are working against the overall national interest. That's not an area that I have studied enough to say anything intelligent about. So (laughs) I don't, that's a long way of saying, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Probably uh, there are a lot of interests that are very compromised, but I notice that I think that the temperature has cooled a lot over issues like, you know, Huawei's entry into the Canadian telecommunications market. I very much hope that we have nothing to, that when this is all over, we have nothing more to do with Huawei, which I think is a bad actor here. Um, What's their sponsorship deal like for Hockey Night in Canada? They oh must, must be a God. few years, right? <laughs> well, fine if they want to sponsor Hockey Night in Canada. I don't have any problem with that. But yeah. you know, that's you know, that's it. That doesn't you know, that doesn't buy them anything more. Look what that their country has done. Yeah. To force us to the you know, like when you start breaking thumbs, forget about it. If that's if that's your government. We're on notice. Thank you very much. <laughs> Next. We do see this idea being floated around that a lot of powerful Canadians are effectively compromised or just have these business interests with China in mind, but they are influential in terms of Canada's China policy. But what right? does that have to do with this now? Growing a backbone? I don't know. No, I see. I, th- I think that that's completely misplacing. That's 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 misconstruing all the background that's gone on here. I don't think that we should be growing a backbone and going to put Canadian lives um, at risk for the benefit of a government that a isn't doing anything for us, um, is not coming to our aid, and is attempting to, um, is basically blackmailing China over over someone that we're keeping prisoner. I mean, that's not a principled stand. Mm-hmm. If that's a backbone, count me out. I'll, I'll, I got another kind of backbone. <laughs> I stick up for Canada. We have interests here. Yeah. And our justice system has interests here. That's why I brought you on. <laughs> no, it's it's one of those things where there are so many strong opinions and you see in the political discourse, as we are seeing with the conservative leadership debate, yeah. people talking about this and, and you don't get anything concrete, and right? It's all the very same people that are trying to sell as much oil as fast as they can <laughs> to China, but we should all get a backbone. So what... So, Let's to sort of wrap this up. What should we be doing? We should intervene, ministerial intervention, to let Meng go, and then what? Where does our relationship with China and the United States? Well, stand? I think that there has to be a lot of high-level communication. I mean, to to be to be honest, um, so I what I think should play out right now is that. In a few weeks' time, um, the Hmong extradition hearing will reconvene. Mm-hmm. At that point, we're going to start seeing a lot of evidence. And I think, Mo, that you're going to be very interested in that evidence that we're going to see. And I think that Canadian public opinion about how much we want to sacrifice um, our Canadians' freedoms may change. Hmm. And as that evidence emerges, the question I think will become more pressing 
as to the legitimacy of our continuing the extradition hearing. And so I'm for let the evidence come out because right now it's just me saying this stuff because I've gone, you know, and done the deep diving. Mm -hmm. I can promise you that Rick Peck and the defense um, team has probably done way more and has way more background and way more hard evidence in terms of emails, communications and, and, and what we know. So I'm for let's let that evidence come out. And then, you know, let's come check back in a month and a half and see what things, how confident everybody is that we're doing the right thing. I'm going to phone you up and we'll, we'll reconvene in a month (laughs) and a half (laughs) is just one last question on, on this issue. Is there consequence that we face from the United States by having ministerial intervention or by the extradition hearing, just not going the way that they want? Well, I mean, there. this is the whole thing. It's like we're supposed to have a backbone against China because the Americans might be mean to us. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of, yes, we will. Well, love, the, um, love them or what, hate them, they're, they're important I mean, to this us, is, right? This is, this is why you sort of look for your points of entry and exit. I think an important, I think an important moment for the um, uh, Ministry of Justice was when Trump threatened to negotiate on negotiate so that was we kind of that ship has sailed Mm -hmm. then we'll have the evidence that is going to come out that's going to be a lot more compelling than this double criminality which was always a long shot and was not never going to go anywhere with with the trial with the um hearing judge so we'll see we'll see that there are there are kind of exit ramps Mm -hmm. and i think that that presents an exit ramp and i also think the u.s election is probably going to represent an exit ramp touch Mm -hmm. wood um (laughs) Because I think that, but but then again, we're still looking at, you know, nine months until another president, if we're all extremely lucky, is installed. And then this is not going to be his first order of business, if, if so. But yes, Donald Trump will retaliate. But if you notice, do you notice how much um, worse his bark is than his bite? Like he's always starting, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then it. It's mainly just, you know, there'll be a big wanted sign of Justin Trudeau hanging in the White House for 25 minutes until the next thing. I mean, this guy has no um, attention span. He's so also susceptible to flattery, it seems he, like. Yeah, although I don't, I don't think, Maybe Ivanka can go and, and plead Justin's case for us. If you can help my friend, he's so nice. He's so handsome, Daddy. Sandy, I had all these questions about BC politics. We're not going to do it because you. I'm sorry, we, I went you, on too long. No, it wasn't that. I was fascinated by this, and again, I just had basic questions around this. You hear so much from each side mm-hmm. that it is hard to make sense of this case. And beyond this case is the fact that we have two Canadians who are wrongfully imprisoned in China, and and and, and China is bad. <laughs> Let's make no bones about it. China's bad. Huawei is bad. It's it's one of those things where just talking to you, I'm just kind of like shrugging, like, oh, we're fucked. Like, we're fucked either way. We are. We are. We are. We do not have... This is what I learned in, in many years of business negotiation is 
there's always an imaginary world in which there's door number one, door number two, and door number three. And if you open up door number one and door number two, and they're both a pile of steaming shit, then obviously the right answer is door number three, but it's probably a bigger pile of steaming shit. And that's what, you know, we do not have an escape hatch here. Yeah. So. That's a pessimistic way to end the podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. I wasn't planning on it either, but I do find this interesting. How do people follow you? How do people follow your coverage of the case? People can follow me. at. Uh, so I've written about this at the, at the National Observer. You can go and, and see my most recent piece. I've written about it twice, and I'll probably be covering it more, and at Garasino on Twitter. And the podcast, Oppo. And the Oppo podcast, Canada <laughs> Land with Jen Gerson. Sandy, this was informative. Uh, like I said, I didn't expect to go the whole hour on Mung, but I'm I had a lot sorry, of fun. I, I had fun. too long. I had fun with Mung. Are people going to be bored, though? <laughs> I, think that I think they'll be bored. There's an audience for this. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they'll be mad. No, they'll be mad. They'll be getting mad. You'll get be getting mad fan mail. Oh, that's par for the course. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Mo. People, she is the national affairs columnist for National Observer and the current co-host of Canada Land's Oppo podcast. She is Sandy Garasino, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.